Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. In the evening hours of May 2nd, 2022, news leaked of a suspected draft opinion from the Supreme Court relating to their decision in the Dobbs v. Jackson case. The case itself was brought forward in the state of Mississippi and is a challenge to the state's 15-week ban on abortion. The draft, which was confirmed as authentic by Chief Justice John Roberts, was authored by Associate Justice Samuel Alito in February, who wrote, quote, We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no references to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one in which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, end quote. The opinion, should it remain as is, will relegate the decision of whether and when a woman can access an abortion to the individual state legislatures. Upon the news of the decision, I received several requests to discuss Roe and the history on accessing abortion on the pod. And while I believe this to be an important moment in history, I also felt it is a much broader topic than I could adequately cover in just one episode. I also believe the history is still being written, and so I struggled with how to do the topic justice. I was fortunate enough to connect with a longtime listener who grew up in California in the era before the 1973 decision, who agreed to come on and discuss her experiences in accessing health care before Roe and what she remembered before and immediately after its decision. To flesh out her story and set up some context, I included information throughout the episode about the history of accessing care in the country and in California. If you've listened to the memorial episode I published about 9-11, the format is much the same. We held our discussion over Zoom, so I want to put my normal disclaimer on any dip in audio quality. So grab your cup of coffee, friends. Let's do this. Yeah, you didn't go, you don't go out in public. You didn't go out to a restaurant. You didn't socialize. It would have just been with family that came to you. You really didn't leave the house. You never saw any of the other stuff. You really didn't. It was all hidden because it was, we were middle-class white America. And that was the way it was handled. Your parents drank socially. You were expected to behave. Everybody was Mr. and Mrs. You had rules. And, and at the time, you don't feel empowered to do anything because it is the norm. This is how you were raised. Before we dive into California's individual history, let's start with how the nation approached the topic of abortion. Historically speaking, women have sought and received abortions for millennia. Prior to modern medicine, women would ingest plants such as black root and cedar root to expunge the fetus. At the country's origins, the colonial government used the concept of quickening to determine how and when to govern abortion. Borrowed from the British common law practice, quickening referred to when a woman could feel the fetus, which was normally between the fourth and sixth months of gestation. 
Lacking the technology of modern medicine, any blockage to a woman's menstrual cycle could imply a variety of dangerous, sometimes life-threatening conditions. Women would treat themselves to clear the blockage to ensure their safety. But once the woman experienced quickening, the societal expectation was she continued on with the pregnancy and do what she could to bring it full term. In practice, what this meant was that before quickening, women could have an abortion without violating any law. Post-quickening, there were some repercussions, but they were minimal, often only considered a misdemeanor offense. However, since there was no medical test available to confirm whether quickening happened, whether or not a fetus was aborted was primarily within the woman's control. The rise of anti-abortion laws throughout the country came about as a result of physicians. As medicine became more industrialized, doctors expressed concern that those without sufficient education could give a woman dangerous advice, which could prove deadly. At least, that was their public reasoning. As historian Jennifer Holland summarized in an article analyzing the evolution of abortion in America, quote, While many physicians believe that scientific medicine would benefit their patients, some, in order to hurt lay healers' business, sought governmental licensing and regulation to weed out the competition, end quote. Regardless of intent, by the turn of the 20th century, every state in the nation had laws on the books legislating abortion, often making the procedure a felony. In California, the early laws primarily focused on the providers themselves, hoping to deter unlicensed or otherwise uncertified individuals from performing abortions. Again, the argument focused on how the lack of appropriate training and education could lead to fatal consequences for the woman. In fact, in the early years of California's abortion laws, the charges filed were almost always due to a botched procedure where the pregnant woman died as a result. It should be mentioned that in practice, this often ended up targeting midwives, indigenous healers, and black Americans who could be imprisoned for performing an abortion of cot. So under the California Crimes and Punishment Act, abortions were illegal, except when deemed necessary by a physician and only a physician. California's abortion laws were also shaped by the robust eugenics movement prominent within the state. Passed in 1909, a California law allowed doctors to perform sterilizations on patients if, in their sole judgment, the procedure would improve the patient's condition. The country, and by extension the government, was caught up in a nativist sentiment and became increasingly focused on limiting the birth of children from the undesirables in society, such as those with mental health disease or immigrants, and preserving the births of affluent white women. In practice, the California statute on abortions ended up backfiring on doctors. Sure, they were able to get the supposed quacks out of the business and reduce their competition, but they were now responsible for justifying any abortion they did perform. While some medical professionals continued with providing abortions and vouching for their patient's medical need, many were scared off from performing the procedure. This created an underground, in essence, of abortion providers and forced women to figure out ways they could take care of their pregnancy privately without hospital intervention. And I know she didn't want to have a baby, but that's what you did unless you knew something underground. So I only heard rumors of people that, you know, had underground access to an abortion. And that was always Mexico. That's the thing you heard was Mexico. The other thing was drinking concoctions. 
to end a pregnancy. Um, hitting yourself in the stomach. And I know one gal that had, I know of, I didn't know for sure, but this was the rumor, of course, back then. And it wasn't anything you talked about. Isn't that something? It wasn't like your girlfriends would, you know, be intimate about details or what happened. It was almost like a shameful thing that you got pregnant. And so I don't even know where they would have accessed the information. And so I was given this birth control pill and not much information was really given to you. Like I wasn't told the risks of strokes or high blood pressure attacks. Nothing was really given out. Really, you were raised kind of in a nutshell. Trying to prevent infections and complications from botched at-home abortions, some activists got together to provide workshops for women on how to perform the procedure at home. In her analysis of the history of abortion in California, Dr. Alicia Gutierrez-Romain explains, quote, These do-it-yourself abortion methods utilize needles, coat hangers, Lysol, bleach, turpentine, kerosene, rubber catheters, or even raw spaghetti, end quote. These kits became a requirement due to lack of knowledge. Women were given very little education about their bodies and therefore were relying on old wives' tales shared among friends and other women who had experience. But this was also a time of sexual conservatism, and therefore accessing this information was exceedingly difficult. Information, I guess they thought I wasn't old enough to know, but I was old enough to get married. I was really very naive. Nothing real educational, because even sex education and and school, which you got, um, consisted of the uh, marijuana blood um, dripping off of their mouths auto wreck. That was one of the films. And the other one was how to use a Kotex with a belt. And it was a cartoon. That was a cartoon one. And telling you about your cycle and the very, and cartoon. That was it. That was your sex education. That was in PE class. It was mandatory to watch it. And I believe it was showed to the boys in the boys class also, because that was the big gossip thing. That was ninth grade. Like I said, the information was not available. We didn't have the internet to look things up. We went to a library. I'm sure the librarian would know if you checked a book out about anything about, you know, female reproduction. That would been a real you know, glaring thing. If you had a parent that was educated, that's fine and dandy. Nobody I knew had a mother that was open like that. Most of our stuff was really just like um, gossip. I'm going to say it was like folktale stuff that you heard. I always only heard about the termination things as gossip. I never heard where it actually happened. And so the one girl that was mentioned that she was trying to get this, it didn't happen. She ended up having the child. So whatever she had tried didn't work. And I don't know that she ever tried Mexico or any of that. That could have just been a wild rumor that was going around. But that you heard that you had to go to Mexico or that you could drink something. Doctors often played an oversized role in the healthcare decisions of their patients, limiting women's voices from the conversation. I never got any schooling information, education, nothing was ever it. And maybe it was my fault for not asking. But when you go to a doctor, you would think they would give you that information. But it was the same with the OB. 
when I'd ask questions, he'd say, well, you let me handle that. I'll let you know when it's time. So that was, uh, that really was how it was. But I, I, I remember, I think of it now at that time, it seemed, oh, okay. I'm not educated enough to know, you know, it isn't imperative that I do know. But I, I was told nothing what to expect. I was told n- nothing. I was told, if your water breaks, call the hospital. That's what I was told. So I, I did. I called the hospital at 2 in the morning. This is the first pregnancy. And I misunderstood what they said. So I got up and vacuumed and made the bed and did some laundry for the next four hours. That's just how stupid I was. My mother... Um, knew nothing. I mean, really nothing. I had nothing to share with me. And so I went into the hospital and they were wondering where the heck I'd been uh, because they said, you know, infection can happen once your water breaks. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that. So right from the beginning, I knew nothing and everything was decided. I wasn't given choices about anything. As Joanne mentions, though abortions were only permitted when the life of the mother was at risk, It did not prevent women from finding ways to try to obtain the procedure. While occasionally affluent women had access to doctors who were more liberal with the law, it wasn't always guaranteed. Those who could afford it would drive or fly down to the California-Mexico border. And those who couldn't, well, their options were limited. So, but I was really surprised to hear this Catholic person tell me that, you know, she was offered an abortion by a doctor in 1972. That just blew me away. Well, the ones that got pregnant during school were not allowed to go to school. So they, that would be, I guess, considered home, home study. They all would get married immediately. Umpire dresses or empire dresses were the rage during that time. So if you were pregnant, it hid that bump. And so I was in two weddings, I believe, where they were both pregnant, getting married, big Catholic wedding. (laughs) Um, I was a bridesmaid in it. And uh, then she had to stay home and have the baby. And I remember taking schoolwork to her. In 1967, then Governor Ronald Reagan signed the Therapeutic Abortions Act, which allowed doctors to perform the procedure when the life or health of the mother was at risk and included the new provision allowing the procedure in cases of rape or incest. So while this decriminalized many abortions in California, it wasn't until 1973 in the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade that abortions were decriminalized nationally. For some, like Joanne, the decision in Roe v. Wade took a moment to fully sink in. Thing of Roe versus Wade, when that came out, I really did not follow the news that it was at the Supreme Court level. When it came out, I thought that was just a huge freedom because you have to understand during this time there, what I was listening to was the Mario Savio's, the freedom of speech, um, women's liberation, all that stuff was coming of age during this time. Um, So Roe versus Wade, I, I don't even think I knew about it. I don't know. I just kind of always felt not valued anyhow. And it, and it was a life. It was across the board. You're not valued. It was down to everything. You're not valued. Uh, financial banking, trying to buy a home. You were not allowed anything. And so for this 
after Roe versus Wade that I think it, that's when it dawned on me that, that or, or a lot of it came onto my shoulders at that time, how much the government really decided our fate and how wrong it was. And I, because at the time you just accept the standards because that's how you were raised. I was a product of the fifties. I think that 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 realization of Roe versus Wade really hit me then. Why did we go to the Supreme Court for us to be able to rule our own bodies? Why? There has, of course, been a series of laws, court cases, and movements in the aftermath of Roe, both for and against the decision and what it meant for women's reproductive health care. The most famous of these cases prior to Dobbs was Planned Parenthood v. Casey, where the Supreme Court instituted the concept of whether or not securing an abortion became an undue burden on the person seeking it. At the time of this recording, the decision in Dobbs is still pending and has not been made official. What happens next is still to be determined. Before I sign off, I do want to extend my deepest thanks to Joanne for sharing her memories with me. Thanks, peeps. I'll see you next week. Um, they were all planned pregnancies. I was very lucky. I was never um, in a predicament that I had to make a choice. And what a hard thing to do because um, I don't know if I could have made the choice that would have been best for me. I think I would have gone along, especially in the early 70s. I would have gone along with the norm. I wouldn't have the norm. It's a scary thing. I was always afraid for my children. Now I've got grandchildren to worry about. And do they have to do the same fight we've been fighting for? It seems absurd. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me. And I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.